The following presentation is from the 41st Annual Addiction Treatment Leadership Conference presented by the National Association of Addiction Treatment Providers, held in Washington, D.C., May 5th through the 7th, 2019. The following is the Quality Assurance Guidebook Care Competency Training, Breakout Session QA5, titled Community Engagement, Public Relations, Public Policy, and Participation in the Community. The panelists are Jennifer Dulles, Melissa Gettler, Paul Rutherford, and Reverend Dr. Rodney Walker. I'd like to introduce our panel. Uh, I've already said me. Uh, there is Rodney Walker uh, from TASC in Illinois, correct? Uh, Melissa Gettler from Care and Treatment Centers, and Jennifer Dulles from B Street Communications. They're going to, they'll give a full introduction of themselves when they get to their sections. And what, what we've done is broken this up into about four components. And like I said, in keeping with us getting you out of here no later than 6 p.m., we're each going to talk for about an hour. And um, no, that's not true. Um, okay. Um, but what we'd like to do is break this up into a few sections. I'm going to talk a little bit about, what well, we're each going to talk a little bit about what we know about. Um, and I'm going to go through our overview. Uh, we're gonna, I'm going to read the guideline that this conversation is based on. We're going to talk a little bit about community infrastructure, which is what I know about. Uh, Rodney's going to talk about participa participation <clears throat> and involvement. Um, Melissa is doing public relations, or do I have that backwards? Yep. Nope, good. And Jennifer's going to talk about relationship and management. And we'll do Q&A. Perhaps we can do Q&A after each section, um, and then maybe you can do general Q&A at the end. So let's start with the guideline, participation in the community. And is everyone familiar with the guideline? This means yes, this means no. I'm an, I'm an audience participation guy. I'm not going to tolerate you guys just kind of sitting there staring <laughs> blankly at me. We're going to... Someone's going to have to sing a song if I feel like you're not participating or engaged. So, um, so um, in the guideline, participation in the community, it says addiction treatment providers should integrate into and engage with communities, engage with the communities in which they serve and operate. As members of a professional healthcare community, Addiction treatment providers should engage in collaborative, collegial relationship with other addiction providers and with the larger medical community. And that's really what we're going to talk about today. And we're going to talk about that today in four different phases. Uh, the area that I have expertise in and what Faces and Voices does has a lot to do with community infrastructure. Uh, now, I've been speaking at the uh, NAATP conferences. I figured out since the one in Fort Lauderdale. Is there anyone here that was in Fort Lauderdale? How about Austin? One Austin, and then last year was in Denver, right? How about Denver? Okay, so I asked this question in each one of these. So who here has heard of the term RCO? I got three, four. That's about consistent. That actually might be a little bit down from last year, but last year we had, I, I was concerned about audience size, so I had a few people come in from our organization to <laughs> make the, well, I needed the crowd to look a little fuller, so, um, so I, I want to talk to you guys a little bit about, and I'm talking about community infrastructure, because as it pertains to community engagement, 
there are plenty of places that addiction treatment providers can engage with the community, but one place that, um, let's see, I'm not good at political correctness. One place that is lacking, I believe, is in the infrastructure that already exists there. In a lot of communities around the country, there are these things called recovery community organizations, um, hence the acronym RCO. And so I've got a list of acronyms, and every, every group has all of their acronyms. So I have some acronyms listed here, but there is already a rich infrastructure of peer-to-peer uh, -peer based services in existence right now today. So we, uh, we facilitate an organization called ARCO, which is the Association of Recovery Community Organizations, of which there are 110 organizations around the country that are operating right now, most of which delivering peer-based services. Um, and we'll get to that definition here. How about uh, Recovery Community Center? Hands? Probably the same hands that know what RCOs are. Oh, very, even fewer. Good. Okay. Uh, Recovery-oriented system of care. That's a buzzword. Everybody should have heard that. No? Okay. Um, so a recovery-oriented system of care, uh, conceptually, and, and I think probably, these are just terms, but I think probably a, a lot of you guys in your work are, are, are thinking about things like this. Um, it turns out that addiction is not uh, an acute illness, right? So uh, I'm, I'm a person in recovery, I have substance use disorder, and I was sent to treatment. Um, when I exited treatment, I was not cured, right? Um, the first time or however many times I went there, it's not relevant for this conversation, <laughs> but, but it turns out I wasn't cured, right? And so they recommended aftercare, and you know what? Even after aftercare, not cured, right? I have a it's a chronic condition uh, that requires some assistance. So the concept of a recovery-oriented system of care is that there are many places along the healthcare continuum that support my recovery, that support concepts of recovery, everything from the criminal justice system. Um, who here has been to jail? Oh, okay, no. Um, the <laughs> criminal... I kid, please put your hands down. Um, the criminal justice system, the healthcare system, uh, up to and including treatment, all of those, all of the social services, all of those things operating together are, could be an, epi uh, uh, an example of a recovery-oriented system of care, something focused on the chronic nature of addiction rather than the episodic acute nature of the way it's been treated in the past. Does that make sense? And, and I, like I said, I know not everyone raised their hand for who knows what an, a ROSC is, but a lot of you are approaching addiction treatment in that way, right? That's why you send people to aftercare and suggest that they go to meetings or, or whatever. Um, Peer-based recovery support services. How many hands for that? Same hands. Um, very simply, peer-based recovery support services are people with lived experience helping other people on their recovery journey. Um, so how about like the term, and I've got some terms here like recovery coach, Peer coach, peer mentor, anybody heard those terms? Yep. Um, and these are some, one of the things that comes up sometimes with clinicians. So that's a good question. Clinicians, show yourselves. Okay. Um, sometimes, sometimes there's a little bit of misunderstanding between what a, peer, what a peer recovery coach does and what a clinician does. So peer recovery coaching is not a clinical practice. It's a professional practice or a paraprofessional practice, but it's not a clinical practice. There is, there is, a, there is a, a, a clear 
bright red line between what a clinical professional does and what a recovery professional does. But sometimes there's a little bit of misunderstanding there. Um, the reason that these services are important um, is mostly that they work, right? Peer-based recovery supports work, um, and that is not just my opinion. Um, it's well vetted, it's evidence-based, there's plenty of data to support that. Um, and the reason that we want these services in conjunction with clinical services is that they promote recovery. So I, I know I've only had a few hands up for a lot of the things I've asked for. How many people in here want to see their patients get well? There we go. There's, the, there's someone that didn't raise their hand, so I, I, don't know if, I don't know if they are just mean or I don't know, I don't know what that's about. No, I'm just kidding. Um, so I touched on recovery community organizations. Um, typically, and there, there are many flavors, right? So these are, these are organically developed organizations. These are not, um, there's not a business school that you, you don't go to Wharton and learn about how to develop a recovery community organization. These are largely organic community-based entities that have sprung up around the community, and they've sprung up as a response to a lack of service in this space, right? Um, in Minnesota, where, where I live, um, there are a couple of recovery community organizations that formed uh, just because there weren't, there weren't adequate resources for people to recover. Um, and in, there are some states where um, treatment is not as, like in Minnesota, we're lucky, there's this thing called the Consolidated Behavioral Health Fund. And like in Minnesota, if you wanna go to treatment, basically you can go. It turns out that's not true in every state. Um, so in some states, RCOs developed because people couldn't get to treatment and this was, a, this was an alternative um, for people that didn't have insurance and couldn't afford it. Uh, typically, RCOs are based around three concepts, policy advocacy, peer-based supports, and community education. In our, in our association, most people do some, some level of peer supports. We have a few that just do policy advocacy. Um, this chart, which I don't know how easy it is to read, um, because I'm, I'm, so, I'm not supposed to be up here promoting RCOs, but it's impossible for me to talk about peer-based engagements without having some basis of understanding. Guess how I learned that? I learned that by talking to a group of you guys about community engagement and not explaining what an RCO was, and I gave a wonderful talk, what I thought was a beautiful talk, and I got done, and someone said, what's an RCO? So, um, the concept of community engagement as it pertains to RCOs is this. It is this convergence of the recovery community, and the recovery community is not just AA and NA, the recovery community is far broader than that. Um, for example, some of the things listed here, faith-based, family, uh, Mar, Matt, Ma, not Mott, Mar and Matt, um, individuals, and just about everything under the sun, the convergence of that with support networks and structure. And, and what, what RCOs do and what peers typically do, I think if there's a good explanation for that is, is sort of like resource navigation. So picture someone leaving one of your treatment programs and needing to understand where to go to get their GED, where to go to get re-enrolled in college, how to get health care, um, how to connect with the recovery community of their choice. All of those places they could typically walk into a recovery community organization and get that help. Um, it would be perfect if they could walk into a hospital and get that help, but that's not the system or the structure that we have. Make sense? Um, so, where is this happening? Well, all over the place. One of the, one of the and, and I don't, 
Um, the term opioid crisis is not in my vocabulary. What we have is an overdose crisis. Uh, it turns out that uh, minorities and poor folk have been dying of opioids since the 1920s. Um, but we do have an overdose crisis, and it is a real thing. Um, so what, what has happened specifically with peer services in the emergency room is that we've seen an explosion of the use of peer professionals in the emergency room uh, just, as, just as adjunct adjunct help because when people come out of, uh, out of overdose or even out of crisis of, of, of any sort, uh, sometimes it's, while they might not talk to a clinician, they might talk to someone that's been in that same situation. So emergency rooms, courtrooms, uh, drug courts, that sort of thing. That's where you see pure folks. Any questions before I hand off? Anybody want to do more audience participation? Are you tired of raising your hands? No? Okay, that's good. That's very good. I would not describe them as recovery community organizations, but there are plenty in Texas. So, um, and, and the thing is, we are not the only clearinghouse of recovery community organizations. There are plenty that are not a part of our thing. Like on our website, there's a list of who, and, and what we do is we have a sort of a vetting system that says, do you meet fidelity with these particular criteria? Um, so there are places in Texas that are doing that. What, what part of Texas? Dallas. Dallas. So APA. There's a, there's a, there's a group called APA. I don't know if you've ever heard of them. but Okay. So that is, that, that's one of the people that are associated with, and that is a really good example of a recovery community organization. Yep. So, um, and it's not, it's not so much about who's in or out. It's, it's just about the awareness that these programs and services, a lot of, the, a lot of our people are operating under state grants. Uh, translation, their services, they're not free because they cost the taxpayer money, but they're free to the end user. So um, in today's business of, you know, do you have coverage or not, it's, it's nice to, for someone to be able to walk into a place and just get services uh, without having to jump over a lot of hurdles for that. Um, there is the business of Medicare or Medicaid reimbursement for peer services that is coming and some states already have it. That will probably change that a little bit, but for now, still a free thing. Other questions? Thoughts? Ideas? Okay. And I may, I, it is probably, there's a slide in here later that I'm probably going to have to talk during, but uh, just because I said I was going to. Um, but that's it for me. I'd like to hand off to Rodney Walker, Director of Youth and Family Services at TAP. Thank you. Good afternoon. My name is Rodney Walker. I am the uh, Director of Youth and Family Services for TAS. Uh, TAS stands for Treatment Alternatives for Safe Communities in the state of Illinois. We cover all 102 counties throughout the state. So today, uh, this afternoon, I'm just going to talk about, uh, I'm old enough to remember Mr. Rogers. Anybody remember Mr. Rogers? Who's my neighbor? So we're just going to have a little conversation about who's our neighbor. Is that all right? All right. I know it's afternoon and we had lunch and we kind of sleepy and tired, so I'm going to try to make this fun. Who's my neighbor? I used to like Mr. Rogers because he put on that jacket. That's why I like jackets. And he came out. 
and he was cool. But I believe Mr. Rogers did a neighborhood scan, scanned his neighborhood and found out who was in the neighborhood so we can see who we need to connect to. Uh, perhaps he did an asset mapping, found out what the neighborhood assets were, and then maybe perhaps he even looked at the community sectors and looked at uh, healthcare professionals and the human services and social services that were in the neighborhood. The different government entities, not just the federal government, but the state government, the county government, the parish government, the township government, there are many levels of government. Perhaps he looked at higher education, universities and colleges uh, in his neighborhood, and then looked at the cultural groups and those organizations. Perhaps he did a scan of the faith-based organizations he looked at the Baptists and the United Methodists and the Pentecostal and the Presbyterian. He looked at the Lutheran and the Episcopal. I'll get to your denomination in a minute. He looked at the, the, the Muslims. He looked at all of them, not just one. And perhaps he looked at the fraternities and the sororities to see who was in his neighborhood. Then, a little bit deeper, he looked at groups that get together by affinity youth groups and parent groups, uh, elementary and high school. When my uh, younger son was in high school, all the high school parents on the travel basketball team, we knew each other in intimately because we traveled spring, summer, fall. I was so happy when he graduated, <laughs> winter. <laughs> Civic organizations and volunteer groups. And then the court system, probation, parole, pre-court services and the criminal justice organizations law enforcement, seniors, businesses, child care providers, and the community uh, partnerships with organizations in the community that do community organizing. So as you can see, there are a lot of different organizations that make up a community who are our neighbors that we can partner with in order to provide quality services. Why would we want to partner is the main question. What type of community connections and engagements do we want to have? Some may be because we need some partners to help us, uh, and my colleagues will talk about that a little bit later today, uh, about regulations and public policy, or perhaps we need somebody to go with us over on Wednesday afternoon to go to Congress, so they're gonna help us to do some advocacy. Perhaps there's gonna be someone that's gonna help us rewrite the narrative. You know, there's always uh, three sides of the story. It's his story and her story, and there's the part that, that no one really knows. Uh, but they would help us to rewrite that narrative. And in learning to make relationships, it's not about leveraging relationships or it's not about sharing power. It's about learning that person's name and their story. Their name and their story. That's it, their name and their story. It's not about getting something from someone. It's not about manipulating someone. It's not about forcing someone to do something. It's just about learning that organization's name and their story because what makes connections work is connections, authentic relationships based on a person's name and their story. Perhaps uh, that person or organization may become a source of volunteers, or maybe they may be a place where we can host a recovery meeting at, at one of those faith-based institutions that have large facilities that are usually open twice a week. I can talk like this because I pastor United Methodist Church in Chicago, so I, I know a little bit something about this. But they have big spaces. They're paying gas and lighting, heat, and insurance anyway. And if we had a name and a story and a relationship, perhaps we'd get to use their facility. You'll catch that on the way home. Perhaps they would be a source of referrals for us. Or 
a source of fundraising, donations, in-kind donations, how we leverage relationships with each other, and then a source of uh, messaging around a shared story or perhaps even a community fair or a community resource opportunity uh, if we knew our neighbors. So you may ask the question, how do we make these community connections? Uh, in the community organizing world, there's a, uh, a term called relational meetings is where we have one-on-one -on -one meetings with other institutions and other people in the community to get to know their name and their story. That could be done face-to-face, -face, could be done over a phone call or email. Perhaps you can use social media, joint press releases, but it's about different ways that we can connect with different people at different levels. Even a lot of your community colleges have uh, college radio stations, and then in some communities there's a public radio station and a public uh, cable channel as well as different ways to connect. But then lastly, uh, before I take my seat, why should we engage? We're engaging because we want to understand the story. So the first question is, who's in the neighborhood? The uh, geographical information, who lives here? Why do they live here? Who's moving in? Who's moving out? How long they've been living there? What's the backstory of the neighborhood? I live in Chicago, in the west suburbs of Chicago, in a county called DuPage County. I live in a town called Wheaton. That's where Wheaton College is. That's Billy Graham country. Next to uh, Wheaton, Illinois, there's a town called Glen Ellen. I always want to know why it's a town called Glen Ellen. And I asked many people in the town and nobody knew. Then I asked a very old lady on the, she served on the city council, why is the town called Glen Ellen? She goes, Rodney, it's very simple. There was a man named Glenn who met a lady named Ellen, they got married. <laughs> Glen Ellen. The, the history, <laughs> the history of why the town has that name, what's behind that name, who lives there, uh, the cultural assessment of that town, what type of people and ethnic groups live in that town, what languages are spoken and what our languages are not spoken, and what, then what's the unspoken language, what's the governmental district, we ask the average person what congressional district they live in in the state, they probably would not be able to tell you. And then methods of engagement, which we talked about uh, earlier, and then some other take-home messages. Thank you for your time. So instead of a who is your neighbor, I can't uh, get out of my head an outcast song that has a, a line in there, but I am your neighbor. I have had that song stuck in my head over and over again. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Rodney. So I'm Melissa Gettler. I'm Vice President of Marketing at Karen Treatment Centers. Um, just a little bit about Karen. We are a nonprofit. Uh, we have two primary treatment campuses, one in Pennsylvania and one in Florida. And uh, we've been treating uh, people for addictions for over 60 years. So I'm going to talk with you a little bit today about uh, public relations and what that might look like for your organization. Uh, so we're going to transition kind of from um, communicating with the community to now communicating with the press or another group that's uh, important to uh, your organization's brand. The, uh, that works. The Associated Press in 2017 added two new entries to their style book, uh, one to address the word addiction and one to address the word alcoholic. 
They did this because they recognized that those two words, along with others, have a deep impact in how society views addiction and those who are struggling with addiction. So I encourage you to um, use words that will help to prevent stigma, which will in turn, of course, then help people to, more people to reach out and find treatment. Some of the examples in the Associated Press style book are person with an addiction. So that can be used and should be used in place of the word addict. Another example is drug use instead of drug abuse. And a third example is uh, saying that someone is sober versus clean. So obviously if you're clean, the opposite would mean that you were dirty when you were not sober. So um, just take some examples of how words can really make a difference in, the, in your writings, um, both within your organization and also externally. SAMHSA also has uh, a few pages with some guidelines and suggestions of what language to use. I realize today that the hyperlinks there highlighted in blue don't work on the app, at least not on the basic version of the app, maybe on the, on the high tech version, I'm not sure. But if you Google Associated Press Stylebook or SAMHSA, uh, you'll be able to find those guidelines uh, very quickly. Uh, next, talking to you about uh, catering to your audience. So those of you who are familiar with PR and even marketing are familiar with that, that statement, that concept, know your audience, know your audience. What I want to talk to you about today is the word substance use disorder, or SUD, versus addiction. So within our organizations, um, particularly those who work in clinical organizations, the word substance use disorder, or SUD, is absolutely appropriate to use at work. However, when you're talking to consumers or the general public, most consumers do not know what an SUD is. So whether it's verbally or whether it's in writing, uh, typically using the word addiction is going to be more useful and more helpful. Sometimes you have the opportunity to introduce addiction or introduce substance use disorder, and then you can say also known as addiction, and then use addiction then throughout your writing or through your public statements. But uh, I do encourage you to think about who your audience is and which words you want to do. I made a note here about taking a cue from keywords that consumers use. Uh, we know, I, Karen, I also oversee the marketing and advertising department. Um, we do some paid search with Google. And we know, uh, as do any of you who also do Google, that um, patients and families or prospective patients and families are not searching for substance use disorder for alcohol. They are searching for alcohol addiction, alcohol rehab, alcohol rehab facilities, and so forth. So uh, you want to be able to think through that in a way um, and use words that are both respectable to the organization and the industry, quite frankly, but also words that the consumer will understand. Next, uh, really framing addiction as a chronic disease. Um, Marv touched on this last evening. You've probably heard other people touch on this as well. But along with that comes words like disease management and relapse. And uh, using the words and making sure that uh, folks understand that managing this disease is going to be an everyday occurrence and that relapse is a very common part of the, part of the disease. And finally, emphasizing that treatment works, right? So this is uh, something that most of us are probably up against, um, whether we're clinical or, or otherwise, um, and, re and really emphasizing that recovery not only means sobriety, but it also means quality of life. So all of the quality of life factors, and there's a, a very popular WHO survey, the World Health Organization, that kind of defines what those quality of life pieces are, following some of those and explaining that those are also important components of recovery is really very important. So along with that comes reporters and uh, media relations. So media relations can be, um, as some of you may know, extremely time intensive. It requires a lot of cultivation and abundance of patience. 
Uh, what I will say is reporters need a lot of education. That's probably not a surprise. It's going to require some cultivation. You really need to build relationships with them. What you have to remember is that uh, just a few months ago, actually, there was a, a large article about a thousand more people uh, who are journalists were losing their jobs across the company in different news organizations. So what that means is that uh, the reporters or the journalists that you're working with are likely working with multiple different news organizations. It also means that they no longer have time to go to coffee or lunch to learn about you and your organization. You're going to have to be creative and crafty and try to figure out how you're able to get those reporters' attention. By providing uh, statistics, um, information, or even just some background, if you will, or even just making one of your experts available without the expectation of having a quote in an article can really go a long way. Again, it will take time, um, but you will see that eventually those reporters will start turning to you for those um, for information on those topics. And there might be a niche in your particular organization that you want to focus on. Trying to focus on addiction as a whole probably won't help very much because you've got a lot of folks who can provide that. But if there's a niche that you have and you can provide information around that, that's going to be a great way to, uh, to increase that. Um, also, do your research. right? So research the reporter. Um, how they positioned addiction in the past. And, and treatment, not just addiction, but also treatment. Have they been pro-treatment or not, and why? If they're not pro-treatment, that doesn't mean you shouldn't engage with them, but know what you're looking at and what you're going to be up against. Um, know when to pitch an opposing or controversial opinion. Absolutely pitching something controversial is important, um, but you have to get a sense for uh, where that writer is in that story or where that publication is uh, in terms of, of where they stand with that. Also looking at alumni stories, that's not anything new. I'm sure many of you use alumni uh, to tell stories, but it's important to know after a while you'll see that some reporters require alumni, some of them do not. Uh, and that's very useful to you because if you don't have a lot of alumni who are willing to tell their story or perhaps tell their story uh, in a fashion for that reporter. So for example, in my, my personal experience, uh, we have a difficult time often having alumni from opioid treatment uh, speak to the media for lots of lots of good reasons. Um, but if you've got those kinds of concerns, know that up front if that's something that the reporter tends to use. And then finally, follow and engage with reporters on social media. So there's nothing they like more, I think, sometimes than just retweeting one of their articles. Follow them. You can even private message them with uh, maybe you saw an article that they wrote. You could message them with um, a study or a survey or even just a statistic that you have from your own organization or even uh, an expert that you have that could speak on something like that. And you can engage with them that way. If they don't respond, just continue to follow them, continue to um, re-engage, if you will, from that mechanism. So I wanted to put the NATAP Code of Ethics up here. Um, this is not the one that you saw at the beginning of the presentation, but I do think that the last sentence of this paragraph is very important in terms of public relations. So use of a patient's identity is permitted only following the completion of treatment and only with the patient's written informed consent. Two things there I just wanted to point out. Um, that does apply to PR because uh, those of you who, who work with the press know that um, the media would love to be able to talk to patients who are currently in treatment. Um, that's kind of the gold mine, if you will, but it's not obviously good for the patient and it's clearly also against the NATAP code of ethics. Also want to point out the written informed consent part. So, um, you may have to remind others in your organization that even if a patient um, tells others that they went to your organization or they're an alumni of your program, 
unless they've actually signed that written informed consent, you do not have the authority or permission to be able to use that. And uh, typically within the PR groups, they're aware of that, but sometimes it needs reminding to, uh, to the organization. And then lastly, um, talking about improving results. So when you're in an organization that's clinically focused, um, trying to get some attention or rewards or, or even just getting some success metrics out there about public relations can be difficult. In fact, I almost recommend you have a PR plan for your PR department, if you will, because it's almost what you have to do. Um, but wanted to talk about a couple of things uh, that you can really expand upon the results, meaning the stories that you get or um, other ways that your experts at your facility are being used. So uh, share intel on what is resonating across your organization. So for example, uh, at Karen, we have a blog that posts every Tuesday. We look at the metrics of that blog and determine what topics are most engaged. What are people reading? What people, what uh, links are they clicking on and so forth? And we use that intel to then inform some of our writing, whether it be in just content development, website pages, um, sometimes paid content, uh, but also uh, press releases and pitching. So we use that to, to be able to do that. And then vice versa. If you find that you're getting a lot of calls from reporters on a particular topic or, or, or trend, uh, share that with your marketing teams, your advertising teams, and so forth, because that likely indicates that there's a consumer need for more information in that area. And then lastly, align topics whenever possible. So, you know, the best way to expand your small budget is going to be to try to work with your, your advertising or, uh, Karen, we call it marketing, but you may call it advertising or something else in your group. Try to work together from a PR perspective. If you're able to align your calendars so that if you have a campaign coming up from a PR perspective, you can align that with an advertising uh, campaign as well. You're going to get double your bucks for that way. So try to um, continue to stay in uh, communication with those groups. Uh, amplify earned media, so or obviously organic and paid social media are very important. Um, organic, many of us are familiar with. Paid, you may or may not be. Uh, Facebook does now require the LegitScript certification to advertise on Facebook. LegitScript is the organization that requires paid advertising on Google. They also certify Facebook and Bing. If your organization has uh, the LegitScript certification for one of those three, you are automatically certified for the others. You may have to do a, a very simple, trust me, very simple compared to LegitScript um, application, uh, but it's probably maybe 10 short fields uh, to get started. But I do want to remind you that for Facebook, um, it does require that. And LinkedIn, from what I understand, is, is coming as well. And then last, um, look at, try to look at successes in PR beyond what I call hits and impressions. So beyond getting an article or beyond um, how many people, how many eyeballs saw your story, um, think of it in different ways. Try to figure out how many you know, website visits. Was there a spike in your website activity when a story came out? Uh, social media engagement. Did a lot of people suddenly on your social channels either start following you or, more importantly, start sharing your information? Uh, inbound calls. Did the call volume go up? Did, uh, did you get more PR opportunities? There was one example um, that we had at Karen where we made a pitch um, to a big news organization, and the pitch fell flat. They really were not interested. Um, but they did say, hey, since I have you on the phone, I do have an interest in something else, completely different off the topic. Um, and really, that then led to what was, a, for us, a very, very big story. So keep that in mind, too, when you're reporting that. I'd also say, um, you know, consider, did your clinical experts get a presentation because of your story? In other words, did they get a phone call? That would be a success of public relations. Um, 
Was there an admission? Was there any public policy meetings that you were able to secure because the fact that the article gave you some credibility? So be creative with how you're reporting um, your results from a public relations perspective because it really does have much more impact um, than what most believe. So with that, I'm gonna transition to Jennifer. Hey, just before that, I, we, we've talked for a while and I apologize for not asking for questions after Rodney's uh, section. And you guys look are quiet and this, this <laughs> troubles me. So what question, I'm not gonna say, are there any questions? I'm going to say, what questions do you have? So someone wants to sing a song is what I'm hearing. <laughs> okay. Great. <laughs> Here might want to blog about this event. Yeah. Are, we, are we welcome to take photos of this panel? Fine by me. Sure. Absolutely. Heavy edit. <laughs> <laughs> Choose a nice filter. <laughs> but you do not need a signed release form of any type. <laughs> no, that would be greatly appreciated. <laughs> any other questions? No questions. All right. Um, I want to thank Melissa and, and just say thanks to the work that Karen has done. I know that um, Karen's really been a leader, you know, I, I think, in, in terms of this. And when I was doing some of my research in order to, to get ready, I came across a blog, um, which I know you mentioned your blogs, but I was just revisiting the one that your CEO did, which was ca called Restoring the Public Trust. And I think that's, you know, that's what we're here to talk about today. It's really such a critical, critical issue. So how do we take the pieces that have been addressed here and really use them both individually at our own organizations, but also collectively as an industry in order to ensure that we do, in fact, operate with the public trust? So my name is Jennifer Dulles. And I'm the founder of D Street. We are an agency, an award-winning agency, um, that works with organizations not only on their public relations programming, but also on the topic of corporate trust and how do organizations get viewed by the publics that are most important to them. So let's talk a little bit about the reputation of this industry. So I'd like to, again, public participation is, is important to me as well. I'm not going to make anyone sing. I absolutely promise that. <laughs> um, but I would like to know, by a show of hands, how many people think the reputation of this industry is viewed favorably? I don't have one person. Okay. All right. Who thinks it's viewed unfavorably? Fair show of hands. Is there anyone who believes it's viewed neutral? In some places. In some places. Okay. Okay. Is the needle shifting at all? Thoughts? Yes. Okay. I see some nodding heads. Um, you know, certainly there's coverage versus fact. And I think when we look at some of the larger news stories that have come out, we have had bad actors, and it is easy for media in the land of media relations to gravitate to those stories, and that is something that is left for all of us to really deal with and address. 
Um, but I think the reality is that the industry is often misunderstood and recovery is often misunderstood. And it's on the shoulders of each of us to do the work in order to ensure that we create mutual understanding about the industry. So it's one of the reasons really that, that Marv and the team at NATEP has spent as much time as they have working on the ethics guidelines, and obviously those are meant to raise the bar. Um, we're now on ethics 2.5. I think it's critical to the industry that those are well articulated and talked about quite a bit. Um, and then we have the guidelines. And really, all of these things, it's the hard work that has to be done by the industry in order to ensure that we have a favorable reputation and to make sure that the image is better aligned with truly who we are, the work that we're doing, and our, our mission and our purpose in our organizations. So what impact does reputation have on business? It actually has a bottom line impact, and research shows this. So company reputations are shaped by a variety of factors. Unsurprisingly, the quality of products and services are identified as the most important factor. 66% um, is, is leads there, the quality of the programs and the services. Now, when you have something that is chronic and you've got people who may be returning for treatment, this can be a challenge. Again, there's a great, great opportunity here for a lack of understanding. And so it's so important that we tell the story. I want to also point out the fact that leadership reputation falls among the top five drivers. What that means for each of you in this room is that your CEO, your leadership, being out in your community, figuring out who is your neighbor, is a critical piece of the equation when it comes to how your organization is viewed by the communities in which you operate. So make sure you are leveraging those people because it is critical to your success. Importantly, when you look at industry, they rank as the third most important driver of corporate reputation. So if we go back a slide and we think about some of the negative press coverage, we're all in this together. And so we don't just operate as individual facilities, we do operate as an industry, and that driver is 50% of your corporate reputation, is the industry as a whole. So there was a period of time when the Wall Street Journal had the crisis of the week section, um, and everyone loves a good crisis as long as you're not a part of it, right? Um, but the reality is that a big publicly traded company and a small mom-and-pop local business have, have audiences that are critical to their success. And so, as Rodney was pointing out, understanding um, who those people are is so important. People get surprised when I say this, but you do not own your brand. You suggest your brand, you create your brand, you storytell around your brand, but in the modern world that we're living in, you have a shared experience of your brand with your consumers. The people who are experiencing your brand influence it. And the reality is that the days are gone when a boardroom could decide, this is who we want to say we are, and that could be entirely disconnected from the authenticity 
of how people were actually experiencing your brand. So with social media in this day and age, just know um, that you have a co-owned brand and it is important for you to use social listening tools and the other technologies that are available to you in order to understand how your brand is actually being perceived in the marketplace. I do get phone calls for crisis. <laughs> and, you know, it's unfortunate when you get the phone call from someone and they're already in crisis. And it's oftentimes not a phone call that says, we think this issue might impact us. It is, we know a story is going to come out tomorrow and it is not as favorable as we would like. That is not the time to call me. <laughs> um, long before my phone rings or anyone else who works in the realm of reputation management, communications, public relations, you should really be working to understand what is your brand's reputation, what are the major drivers of that reputation, and how can you measure that, monitor that, and grow that every single day. And I really, truly mean every single day. And I think, you know, Melissa, you spoke a little bit about media relations takes so much time. Um, you really do have to invest in understanding how you can continue to drive your relationships and build your brand. This is television, so a lot of people say, oh, so you're like Olivia Pope. No. <laughs> that, is, <laughs> that is TV. <laughs> it's not real life. Um, for a great example of, of really, I think, an engagement on, you know, tough issues and demonstrating transparency, Hershey is a great example of this. So they had some issues around the sourcing of their products. And you go to their website and you can see that they talk about their global sourcing policies. There's transparency there and they are aiming to create understanding. Now, I can tell you, if they were a smaller organization, the CEO might have said, ah, I don't know, we don't really want to address this. We don't want to tackle this. You do not get that luxury in today's market. You need to tackle the tough issues. So. I think a lot of the misunderstanding about public relations really comes from this concept of publicity. And, you know, publicity is, uh, you know, important for the circus <laughs> coming to town. Um, but, but really, that's the lowest level. It's the lowest barometer of what public relations and engagement with key audiences can do for you. And so if you look on the right-hand side there, there are really four models. The first one and the, the lowest is this concept of press agents or publicity. This is literally saying to your agency or your firm, get coverage on this. That's it. A little higher up is that public information model. We see this used a lot. Um, PIOs work a lot of times in law enforcement. Um, and that is one-way information. We're pushing out information that's important to you. Moving up, you have the two-way asymmetrical model. And then lastly, the two-way symmetrical model. The difference of those is in the symmetrical model, this is a two-way communication loop. You are actually listening to what the publics are saying about you, bringing that feedback back into the boardroom, and making meaningful adjustments. And so you are creating then mutual understanding with the publics that are important to you. The fellow who came up with, with this model says the overall goal of creating mutual understanding between parties also is much more palatable for audiences because in human nature, no one desires 
to be controlled. If a person is controlled or feels inferior to another person or organization, they will not develop trust and they are likely to withdraw completely from the relationship. The same goes for organizational public relationship. If we create a sense of open communication and build trust through the two-way symmetrical model, we are more likely to be in a positive position when a time of crisis does occur because of strong relationships that have created a strong reputation. So what are six factors that can lead to success? First, figure out how to assess your brand's health and its reputation honestly. And that means the good, the bad, the ugly. So with your CEO, with your boardroom, with all those staff members, make sure you have a great understanding of how you're actually being viewed. You can consider creating a reputation scorecard, which is something we do with a lot of our clients, which actually identifies what are the reputation drivers that either positively or negatively impact how you're viewed by the media and by communities that are important to you. Articulate your organization's vision and values proactively. Build advocates and, ahead of time, identify threats. Ensure regular storytelling across all channels. It is a very, very communications-powered world that we live in. It can feel daunting, but there are ways to be utilizing editorial calendars or content and sharing it across multiple platforms. Create feedback loops and actively listen. Anything that is going to take you by surprise should not truly be a surprise. It's something that we can all work to identify ahead of time and understand if you, in fact, have a crisis plan in place. We liken it to a piggy bank. So you want to build your reputational bank and make regular deposits into that. Every time you're doing something positive in your community, you are building up that bank, and that will make, if there is a crisis in your organization, it will be far, far less painful because you have the reputation that you do within your community. So NAATP has done a lot. They're, they're working to, and they have raised the bar, really. They're elevating the profession and ensuring there's a meaningful two-way dialogue with key constituencies. Community engagement is certainly critical to all of our success, but not just in your individual organizations, to the industry as a whole. And working together, I think we can leverage the work that's been done on the national front and elevate, really, the reputation of the industry in the years ahead. Thank you very much. Okay, so <clears throat> now for our second part. This is the part where we go to six. Um, no, I, I actually just, we're, we're basically done, but I do have a couple of questions for you guys. Um, I'm, I'm a group guy. I don't know if you can tell. I've spent time in groups before, so it, it, I like to have a little bit more of a dialogue than, a, than, than me talking. Not that I don't like the sound of my own voice. I do. Um, I'm curious if anyone would be willing to share, see, group, share, um, anyone would be willing to share why you came to this session, what you expected to get out of it? Because it doesn't do me any good if you didn't get what you wanted. I'll, I'll get to you. There's someone behind you. Yes, ma'am. Hi. So I'm Allison Knopf. I'm the editor of Alcohol and Drug Abuse Weekly. And I was hoping to see some mainstream media here. I don't know. Is there anything? Well, you are. 
I'm not mainstream. I'm straight. And I've covered the field for more than 35 years. And when I see these stories about horrible treatment programs, I've never heard of these programs before. Mm -hmm. I don't even know these programs. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I. So, first of all, I'm available if anybody wants to tell me their good stories, but that's basically preaching to the choir because we're all readers. But, you know, there has, there has to be a way for people to get together and tell these good stories. And it can't just be NAATP saying our members are all, all good, because that's, that's not new. That's, that's been true for some time. Um, you know, when these stories come out, are any of these programs NAATP members? So um, I just, you know, I, I don't really have any questions except that, you know, I hope that things get better. I, I was there when the field died in the late 80s, and then it came back, and I hope it stays back. Thank you. Yes. And Tamara Jimenez, I'm for and I might also detox treatment in California. And um, so I'm, and I do our, I do our community and government relations. So that's what I do. And that actually stemmed out of when I first got hired there, I was hired to build an alumni program. And then one day my CEO said, hey, why don't you go check out a chamber of commerce meeting? I had no idea what I was doing, never been to chamber of commerce. I went and, and it really just like blossomed from there. And, I don't know, I love hanging out with the politicians, I get it. They're, it's just like dealing with an alcoholic, they just want to hear all about themselves. So, you know, like, I, I, I learned a lot. Like, I, I, I had to start watching C-SPAN, it's like Rosetta Stone for politics. Because like, they, they speak their own language, right? Just like doctors do, and lawyers, but they do, the politicians. And so I started watching C-SPAN, and uh, I find it fascinating. My husband thinks I'm weird. But, um, so, so that was why, um, why I came to this because that is, that is what I do. And, um, and we have a big problem in Orange County right now because they're focusing on like, really the, I mean, the bad programs are gone and um, yet we're still getting, but it, it's our own legislative representatives who are, I went to a, um, it, was a it was a CCAP conference. They do our credentialing in, uh, in California. And, and they had this state assembly woman who spoke, and as she was speaking to us, she referenced as her research the Orange County Register, which is this paper, and, and this Rehab Riviera. We are the Rehab Riviera. And I'm like, what are you, like really? <laughs> and, 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 it's, it, and it upsets somebody like me, right? And I'm sure everybody else in this room that have come from good players, right? Because it's the good players that are doing good things. And then I don't know about the rest of y'all states, but California seems to keep passing these bills that are really just, they're not affecting any licensed, I mean, it, it's, they only affect licensed facilities. So they don't even go after the bad players, right? So it's like, okay, well, what, well, I'm, I'm, a, I'm always the troublemaker at the conference, and, and you know, and I, I asked her, I said, well, when are you going to start going after the insurance companies who won't give 30 days worth of treatment, right? She couldn't even answer it. She had to have the CCAP person get up. But, um, so I, I've been slowly moving on to, now I'm in like this advocacy role, but I also do a lot in the community, and so everything you, um, you were talking about, like, 
I build relationships with you know the police department, the nonprofits, government from city hall mm -hmm. all the way up, right, all the way up to out here, and and just building those relationships. And really, it is a it's time consuming, and it's a lot. But you know what? When when our Congress, our member of Congress, it, it gets a constituent. I just had this call last week. Hey, I had a constituent's parent that called, and they're look. They, they, they have a kid that's on drugs and they don't know what to do. Like, can I give them your number? Right? And that's because I show up at their events and act like I'm interested. Like, you know what I mean? Like, even if I'm not interested, yeah. like, I act like I'm interested, right? And so it is, it's just, it's, a, it's very time consuming, but um, I think it has really, really helped us with our reputation in the community of, like, you know what I mean? So even though Orange County is getting this bad rap, Anaheim Lighthouse does not because I volunteer at community events, like, you know what I mean? And our alumni volunteer at community events. So we do all of that stuff that was all listed throughout this whole presentation. That is what we're doing. So I just wanted to come to... Excellent. Excellent. Yes, ma'am. I'll ask you <clears throat> panel or even someone in the room. We're a relatively new treatment facility. We've been around three years. And we're getting some pushback from our legal counsel. We have outside legal counsel on using video testimonials from our alums. The alums want to sing from the rafters. They want to do whatever they can to help propel our program and talk about the differences for those that have especially been in multiple treatment um, types of environments. And so I'm curious, even having them sign the release and they're out of treatment, they sign consent, all the, we meet that requirement that you put up there earlier. What is the downside to doing that and having those video testimonies? Right now they give us written and we have the consent for that, we rotate that on our website. But to have a face and a name of someone that's willing, you know, 25 year old young man that's willing to share his battle with opiates and how he's now three years clean. You know, how do we leverage that in a way that um, provides respect to our alum um, and then also tells our story from a third-party element, but then protect that. And what's the downside to having them sign the consent and doing the video testimony? So the downside, and I'm speaking from a public relations perspective, the downside would be that that individual relapses, right? Um, which we all know is a very real possibility. Um, that's the downside. I don't know what the legal ramifications of that would be. I can't see any myself. Um, we do have. Uh, alumni on video at Karen uh, have not had pushback from the legal department in doing that, but we also have implemented some of our own kind of minimum requirements. So for example, um, we do treat teens at Karen. We will not put teens, even if they're five years sober, on camera, uh, just because we their life, you know, they have a lot of life ahead of them and they don't know if they, they want to be on camera 20 years later. So um, we also make sure that they have one year of continuous sobriety. So we have kind of, we've implemented our own uh, sort of requirements, uh, and that may have helped perhaps eliminate some of that. But the downside to your question is um, we all know that relapse is, is a reality, but the consumers do not. So the downside would be that, that individual relapses. I, I would just suggest don't use last names. It's kind of like, well, I don't know who's in here or not, but like, you know, when you're in a 12 step program, you know, one of the traditions has to do, you know what I mean? Like, we don't, you know, the anonymity is just, you can just use a first name, not last names, and that kind of. We didn't right? even ask them for it. They wanted to do it. 
And so I talked to the legal counsel, and he's like, eh, you're open a whole new can of worms. So, but on the same token, if they want to do this, and they, they're excited about their recovery, and some of them have years under their belt, um, and if that's meaningful to them to have that opportunity to do that, I want them to have that platform, if that's what they would like. More so than I want the marketing piece of that. Mm -hmm. Can I add? Yep. Thank you. Um, and you know, congratulations to this person having three years sobriety. But what I have found in this history, coming out of a situation like this, was we, I had a advertisement done by somebody, and I didn't know the advertisement had been done. Long story behind that, but um, 18 months she had been sober. It played. I heard it. I was like, oh no, because that person might have been some sober time, but let's just say she wouldn't live a life of recovery. And so there, so other people who heard her, who knew her, is like, wait a minute, that's not. Because of others, she might have been sober, but there wasn't. There's other things going on in her life, and so, and I don't. I love. I love it that you know they're in recovery. I'm myself in recovery, but sometimes that past will follow them, and somebody hears that on the radio that knows them, or that sees them on TV and knows them, then they haven't seen the changes they've made in their life, and then they affiliate that with your center also. Mm -hmm. It takes a long time for the reputation for the addict, alcoholic, the person in addiction, or you that are not. To, I learned um, to, for that to go away, you know, and so, you know, congratulations for having three years, but still that stigma or whatever kind of thing might still be following them, the other people have maybe not recovered from that yet too, and that can cause issues. And so I think we're agreed there is risk and reward, mm -hmm. right? There's some of both. Mm -hmm. Okay. Any, I know we're getting late in the day, um, and... Any any other thoughts? Anyone? How about for the the panel? They're really good. Or okay, someone that doesn't want us to go home, please. No, I'm just kidding. I'm sorry. I'm I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I couldn't I couldn't resist. I apologize. The CEO reputation? Yeah, the reputation, like, referral to the basis of... Yeah, uh, it, it was a study, I believe, two years ago. It's done by Weber Shandwick on a pretty regular basis, so... Right. I'm just curious, because, like, one of the reasons I came to this, uh, this presentation, um, you know, over the last course of a couple of years, like, marketing has changed as a whole in this industry. Very much. Um, and it took, like, a big shift towards how marketing was done. Uh, one thing I really struggle with our center, we're in Pennsylvania, is, um, you know, people believe it's all about, like, reciprocation now. It's not about, like, building the community base and, like, you know, really being there for your community. Um, you know, and that's the one thing that I'm really trying to take with our, our program in Pennsylvania right now is really to not so much branch out to different states as much and be everywhere, but rather than be in a radius around where we can actually help the people The, the reason I ask that is because, you know, one thing I've seen a lot, is, and this is through like, the, like doing a lot of research with, the, with our marketing department in the last two years, is um, the way like referrals are happening. And, you know, the one thing, like we used to have some 
very known places that we worked with that um, have great reputations. And you know, one of the things that we are known for very well is our clinical reputation. Um, and some of them started trickling down. You know, we would go back and ask them, you guys, why, what's going on? And one of the big factors that I've seen recently is like, well, you're not sending that many in to us. And you know, I started asking, well, you know, I understand that, like, we do want to use you, like, you're a great program too. We're just, we're a, a partial hospitalization intensive outpatient program. I hope we're not sending a ton into you. And we're not, like, you know, branding on Google and, like, having these expansive, like, call centers and things right. like that. So we don't have, like, a, a mass or a majority of, like, referrals going back up. Yeah. And, um, you know, then we, I would start talking and hearing about other programs that they were going to, and it was like, well, you know, they don't have the best reputation. And it's like, well, they sent us, you know, like 12 back up. And I'm like, all right. So that's why I was like, I'm trying to build the community a lot better and, and yes. be there for the community because I think when you, you build your reputation there, you don't do it for yourself. Because, um, you know, snap of fingers, the relationship between centers change all the time. Thank you for your presentation. Thanks. And um, you are almost out of here, but I was just reminded of one thing, and the young lady in back demonstrated um, synthesis. So you guys are going to get evaluations to talk about whether or not you got anything out of it, and, and that's fine. But you demonstrated synthesis, which is a level, of a level of learning, which is that you integrated something that we did here into your language. So on that note, can anyone tell me what the acronym RCO stands for not it not if you already knew you don't you don't get to, you don't get to play if you already knew anyone I'll give you a hint one of the words is recovery yes yes ma'am recovery community organization yep see that's synthesis we got that um, how about how about um, tell me something about the the people in your neighborhood um, tell me something from that section of the presentation Okay, Mr. Rogers, that's good. What? Very good. Um, and uh, what about public relations? Uh, and did you have person-centered? Was that your, was, or uh, uh, at person with addiction? Who, what, which, yes. that was in yours? Um, and then um, something from the last segment. There you go. See, that's synthesis, right? You, you have something that you can take with you. So that's our objective. Thank you, guys.